All right, well, good morning, Westlight. Good morning. Uh, I'm Jordan. And I'm Daniel. <laughs> and uh, today we're going to be talking about <coughs> The Greatest Showman. And so for those of you who haven't watched the movie, it's a musical based on the life of P.T. Barnum, who is a real person, <coughs> a great person. But um, mm -hmm. still, you know, this is a family-friendly, kinder telling of his life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so we're just going to go through the list of the main characters. So the main character, of course, is P.T. Barnum, who is played by the incredible, the amazing, the ageless wonder, <laughs> Hugh Jackman. Are there any Hugh Jackman fans out there? Because I love him, man. <laughs> I mean, he's Wolverine and he's P.T. Barnum. The guy can do anything. He's very you good. that's a celebrity crush. That is my celebrity Number crush. <laughs> um, so the movie picks up, and he's a man. P.T. Barnum is a man with humble beginnings. Um, he's a tailor's boy. And it kind of just follows his life um, and how he started his circus. And next up, we have Philip Carlyle, who's played by Zac Efron. Any Zac Efron fans? <laughs> no? <laughs> oh, Bruce? <laughs> <laughs> um, he's not a real person. They probably just wanted Zac Efron in the movie. But um, his origin story in the movie is that basically is the opposite of P.T. Barnum. He comes from a very wealthy background. He, money is no, of no object to him. He leads a very luxurious life. And when they first meet P.T. and Philip, uh, he is a producer of plays for the rich and famous. Mm -hmm. And then lastly, we have the performers, of course. Um, and these are the people that P.T. Barnum went out and recruited for his circus, for his show. And these are the people that had you know, the strange wonders, the hidden talents. And these people were kind of the outcasts of society. They're kind of pushed on the outskirts of the city because of the way they looked, um, because maybe they had you know, weird, uh, you know, they had a weird look like dog boy with his hair all over him or the bearded lady or the really, really short guy. Um, these are all kind of the outcasts of, of the society. Yeah, so even though all of these three main characters um, have different backgrounds and very different stories, the one thing that they do all have in common is that they've all experienced great judgment and ridicule from people. And so as a result, they care very deeply about you know, what other people think of them and trying to get their approval. And so, for example, if we start with P.T. Barnum, um, he has faced judgment from his father-in-law. And we'll show a clip later. But basically, when he goes to pick up his fiance slash future wife, the father-in-law tells him, you will never be good enough for my daughter. Similar words that I heard from <laughs> Paul Tamer. <laughs> it was all too familiar. So I've heard that before somewhere. Where have I heard that? <laughs> no, he didn't say that. <laughs> Paraphrasing. <laughs> um, and so PT really internalizes that, and he tries to work really hard to prove his father-in-law wrong and be like, no, I am good enough, and I will be good enough. And so the whole movie basically follows him as he kind of tries to build his empire so he can show that he is good enough and shove it in his father-in-law's face and be like, yeah, look at me now. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And then you have Philip Carlyle, um, and he's basically the opposite, where he's come from great wealth and has a great reputation with the, you know, the cream of the crop, the highest of society. And uh, his job is just to maintain his status and maintain that great reputation that he has. And the way that he copes with that kind of pressure is that he just basically spends his life uh, trying to fit into this box that he was born into. You know, his family was rich, and he doesn't want to bring any dishonor to them by straying outside the lines or doing anything weird. So basically his role is just to produce these plays that the rich and famous come and see, 
and he just plays that part. That's his role. Um, but however, him for himself, he kind of gets no enjoyment out of that. There's no fulfillment. There's no satisfaction for him doing these things. But it's simply just because he has to do it. He has to play the role. Um, but he kind of feels no freedom in being himself. He doesn't really get to be himself in this role. Indeed, because he produces plays, but he's actually the actor. He's the real actor of it all. Um, okay, next we have the performers. And they, of course, have faced judgment because of their appearance. And so, you know, people, when they see them, they point or stare or laugh at them. And um, as a result, their solution was to hide away and to avoid people at all costs. Because if people can't see them, then they can't laugh at them and they can't hurt them. So they just try to hide themselves and avoid people no matter what. And so we have a clip now to show kind of uh, what that looked like for each person and kind of give you a visual representation of how they've each faced judgment. Sir, I, I know I don't come from much, but I will take care of your daughter and I will give her life as grand as this one. She'll be back. Sooner or later, she'll tire of your life, of having nothing, and she'll come running back home. <laughs> hey, you looking for freaks? I know where you can find one of them. Really? Come on, girls. I'm sorry. I, who's doing this singing? It's you, isn't it? Sir, I have to ask you to leave. You are so talented, blessed. Extraordinary. Unique. I would even say beautiful. <laughs> Sir, please leave me alone. but they will. gives you a sense of what they were kind of experiencing, like um, the father-in-law, father of course, telling him that he comes from nothing, the bearded lady literally be hiding behind a sheet and covering herself, and then Philip, when he sees his parents, they're holding hands, but that's like very shameful to interact with someone of that <laughs> of African-American descent, and so Philip literally lets go and like hides his feelings and tries to please his parents. And so hopefully that kind of, for those of you who haven't seen the movie, that kind of gives you a sense of where they're coming from. And all these people, as you see, they've uh, really let their, the judgment that was placed on them define them and define their lives. And it was all very painful experiences. And that's why we saw like all their different responses to it. And because they're just trying to do anything that they can to avoid that judgment again or avoid that pain and anguish again. And that's something that me and Daniel, both as people pleasers, we obviously care about what people think of us. 
Um, that's something that we've really related to. I think we, probably most of us have had stories of where we felt judged or ridiculed or like we weren't enough. And um, so we can understand or relate to their coping mechanisms. I think for me, a lot of times, you know, I'll try to hide my insecurity or I'll try to fit myself into the expectations of other people, um, kind of like Philip and the performers. So, Dana, do you have any stories? Yeah, you know, I, uh, you know, a thing or two about, you know, painful memories. Um, and I remember in high school, I went to a, a high school that was in the Valley and a lot of Caucasian people. And so I had been on the basketball team and it was our first day of practice. And of course, before our drills, we do, a, you know, our stretch. So then we're like, okay, we stretch our legs and then we stretch, you know, we put the old arm over the, you know, over the neck, you know, get that tricep stretch. And, you know, I'm like this and I'm looking around and all my teammates have just these bushes of armpit hair bulging and I'm and I look at mine and it's nothing but peach fuzz you know and I'm like I thought there was a hair there and it's a piece of lint and it blows away and I was like oh dear nothing, nothing there. there and then the, my teammates look at me and like whoa, whoa, whoa Daniel what do you shave your armpits I'm like whoa no what man why would I shave my armpits and then they look at my legs and like whoa 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 why are you shave your legs too I'm like no man yes they're a little shiny but I don't shave them like what do you and so then the days after, my way of avoiding it was just to kind of stretch like this, you know, and I bought high socks to cover my, my beautiful bare legs that, <laughs> women, uh, that women desire, you know. I, they, there's just no hair. So I was, I was very embarrassed. There's a lot of pain and shame. You know, I could still hear their laughter oh, in my so sleep sorry. today. It was a lot of pain. Yeah. So I can relate to those performers mm-hmm. who went through a very similar, a lot of torment. Yeah. With a lot of torment. It's very traumatic. You're basically the performers. I'm basically. It's basically the same amount of pain, same level of pain (laughs) that we went through. Um, But this is something I think, as I said, we've all experienced and that we've all tried to cope with and deal with. And uh, so it's a very common problem. But not only that, it's not a new issue at all. It's actually a very old issue that people have been dealing with since forever, basically. And so if we look in the Bible, um, there's a story of a woman who has faced a lot of judgment. And her response, like the performers, was also to hide away and avoid people. So this story is of the Samaritan woman, or the woman at the well. And it can be found in John 4, verses 5 through 30. So if you want to follow along, you can read that story. Um, But we pick up, and we'll pick up in verse 5. And it says, now he had to go through Samaria. So he being Jesus. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When the Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? (laughs) Um, So just to give you some context, like it says, it takes place in Samaria. Right, and uh, Samaria, we looked it up. Uh, It's kind of called a different name now. It's not really Samaria in present day. But it's somewhere in between Israel and Lebanon. So right? everyone knows where that is. Everyone knows where that is. <laughs> we it's in the Middle do. East. All right. But, you know, so you think it's hot. You thought it was hot this week. Imagine how hot it is out there. I mean, it's probably super-duper hot, right? It's, yeah. yeah. Hey, man, see, Ricky knows. <laughs> Ricky knows how hot it is out there. <laughs> yeah, me too. Me too, man. No air conditioning. No. Um, and so... Most people went out to get water like she's doing in the morning to avoid that heat. But this woman, since she's faced a lot of judgment because 
she's had five husbands. That's mm-hmm. her shame that she's trying to hide away. Um, she goes out at noon, even though it's the hottest part of the day, to avoid the people. And so imagine how she's feeling. This is like, ugh, so disappointing that there's a man there. Why would Jesus be there right now? Because it's like the worst nightmare. Worst nightmare. Yeah. She mm-hmm. doesn't want to see anyone. There's a man sitting there. And then to make it worse, he's talking to her. And he asks her for a drink. <laughs> That's like the last thing she wants to do is pour a man a drink. <laughs> I'm guessing. Yeah. I, don't know. <laughs> I don't know. You have Samaritan women friends that you've asked. Yeah, a lot of Samaritan yeah. women friends. I've asked <laughs> if this was their nightmare. They all said, yeah, this is my nightmare. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Jesus asking me Just for stress them. Yeah. Stress me. Um, so, yeah, not only is this person that is there at the well when she's trying to avoid people, he's talking to her. And then as the story continues, we see that he actually knows her secret. He knows her deep, deep shame that she's trying to hide away. Um, And so she's expecting him to ridicule her, just like everyone else that she's come into contact with has ridiculed her and judged her for this. And let me tell you, I'm a sinner, so if I met someone who's had five husbands, I'm not going to lie, I'd probably judge them, too. Yeah, I would have a few questions for that lady. Yeah, Yeah, that's true. But luckily, Jesus is not like that. He's perfect and non-judgmental. So what he offers her instead, to her surprise, is acceptance and he offers her a gift of living water, right? And he doesn't ridicule her, he doesn't make her nightmare even worse, but he flips the script on her and offers her acceptance and love. And um, as a result, we see in verse 28 through 30, it says, then she leaves her water jar and the woman went back into the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And they came out of town and made their way toward him. So we see that because of her encounter with Jesus and because he became a safe space for her where she, where she could feel accepted and loved, not only did she stop avoiding people, but she actually went to the people and talked to them and interacted with them, which is the exact opposite of what she was doing before. And so if we kind of see her timeline again, she starts off, uh, that's her judgment, that she has five husbands. And so her response was to hide away like the performers. But then her story continues where she encounters Jesus and she is accepted by him. And that allows her to overcome her fear of judgment. And in the same way, we can look back at the movie and uh, in the same way, we can see uh, that that's what the circus was for these characters, that it was a sense of community, a place of belonging. Um, that they didn't have to be anyone else, that they came together in this circus and it formed this safe space, this safe community where they didn't have to worry about the opinions of other people. Where they were, they were safe. They, they could be themselves. They could express themselves. They looked out for each other. They fought for each other. Um, they even risked their lives for each other. And um, they could feel accepted, genuine feeling of this is a place that I belong. And it's out of that feeling of acceptance and belonging that they were able to just break the chains of judgment and ridicule that were holding them back. And so then the performers, you know, in the movie, they, they break free of those chains. And even though they're in the middle of the, 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 the high society, the New York City rich folk, they go right front and center. And they're like, no, we don't care. This is who we are and this is who we're going to be because we're a community and we feel safe in our place and no, despite what anyone else says. And the same with Philip 
uh, Carlisle, where, where he finally just says, you know what, I don't care what my parents think. I don't care what, the sis- what my friends or people who I grew up think. I, I want to be with this Ann Wheeler character, and it doesn't matter to him. He doesn't care if it brings dishonor to him. He, is feel, he feels that this is the place he belongs, and he's the place that he's meant to be in. Mm-hmm. Oh, and uh, this clip, it kind of further drives home the point of how it feels for them, how important that circus was to them, and uh, how big of an impact the circus, uh, the community, had for them in their lives. Shut up, Barnum. You just don't get it. Our own mothers were ashamed of us. Hit us our whole lives. Then you pull us out of the shadows. And now you're giving up on us too. Maybe you are a fraud. Maybe it was just about making a buck. But you gave us a real family. And the circus, that was our home. We want our home back. As much as I would love that clip to go on, because that's my favorite song, but <laughs> we will play it another time. We don't have time for that. Um, so both of us, I think, have been fortunate enough to have people come around us and be that sort of community and um, provide that family for us. And so one person in particular that I really want to highlight and talk about is my best friend, the person that I always feel safest with, uh, the big part of the Westlight family too, and someone that uh, has always been there for me, my best friend, Sabrina. Sabrina. (laughs) 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 And Daniel, but mostly Sabrina. So uh, for those of you who know her, uh, we went to UCLA together, but if not, uh, I don't know how to describe her. <laughs> she's my best friend. But she's been the person that since college that we've grown really close, and we have a lot in common, so we click really easily. And um, throughout the year, she's been someone that I could come to with pretty much anything. Um, we talk pretty much every day, <laughs> um, but even though she lives in NorCal. But... Um, Yeah, it's been really great having someone like her because she's someone that has provided a very safe space for me. And um, what that means basically is that I don't have to censor myself when I'm around her. I don't know if you get that feeling like when you interact with people you don't really know. You're like, oh, should I say that? Should I not say that? I don't know. Maybe they're going to think I'm weird. Maybe they're going to maybe I'm going to embarrass myself. But I never feel that with Sabrina. Like I could tell her my most embarrassing story. I probably have, and she will probably laugh, but I won't feel like judged, or I won't feel like she thinks any less of me, or if there's something really frustrating going on at work, I can talk to her and be like, oh my god, they're so annoying, and she's like, yeah, why are they doing that? I'm like, I don't know, they're crazy, and she's like, yeah, they are crazy, and I can be like, thank you, I knew I'm not the crazy one, they're the crazy ones, and so it's nice just having that person who will like be very quick to support me and empathize and remind me that I'm not crazy all the time. Um, but it's just nice to have that uh, one safe space out of many safe spaces, <laughs> like with Daniel, um, that uh, provides support and understanding and is always quick to love me and accept me before anything else, before judgment. And I don't have to worry about what she's going to think of me. And so as we were reflecting on a relationships like that, um, a few things that kind of came into our mind um, of what that actually looks like is that, you know, with people like these in a safe space, with the performers in the circus, 
this means that they're more comfortable in their surroundings, right? They have a sense of belonging with this people, and that gives them a greater sense of confidence, and they could be sure of themselves, and you feel like you're enough, right? You don't have to feel like you have to prove yourself. And um, yeah, it's just a nice feeling that you can be who you are and do what you do without having to fear judgment. And there's no obligation to be anyone else. There's no obligation to do something that maybe you don't want to do or you, that doesn't feel authentic to yourself, but you could be true to who you are. And that's something that when we have a safe space that we can feel free to do. Um, and so you might be thinking like, yeah, that sounds great. I definitely want those things. But just to recap, what you're saying, Jordan, is that they felt a sense of judgment, they had a safe community, and then they overcame that fear. But what am I supposed to do with that? Because we can't force people to be a safe space for us. And you're absolutely right. So our solution is that there is no solution for what you can do on your own to uh, stop feeling that fear of judgment, right? So we believe that overcoming fear of judgment is not something that we have to do on our own, but it's something that we have to tackle together. Because, um, like, yeah, like we said, we can't control other people, but it's something that, as a community, we have to tackle together because we influence each other more than we know, right? And so um, we can't do it on our own. We need Jesus like the Samaritan woman, and we need each other. We need other people. Um, yeah, I don't know if you've ever experienced, like, interacting with someone who's really guarded or defensive. No matter how hard you try, it tends, your wall tends to like creep up and you kind of feel defensive too, so it kind of is contagious. But in the same way, if you interact with someone who's like really free and open and authentic to who they are, then that kind of also gives you the space and freedom to do the same. And so it's, since it's a contagious thing, it's kind of a cycle that we want to start, right? Like if you give space to allow someone else to feel free to who, be who they are and to feel like they're free of judgment, then that's contagious and then you feel more free to be who you are and free of judgment and it's kind of like a cycle that feeds off of each other. Are you guys kind of following what we're saying? <laughs> uh, so for example, um, like in P.T. Barnum's case, right? So he was definitely dealing with his own stuff. He definitely had a fear of judgment. He definitely was imperfect but he was able to create this circus, this space that people could feel accepted, the performers felt accepted for who they were, and um, had a sense of community. Um, and as a result, they were able to overcome their fear of judgment, and they were able to overcome um, this lack of self-confidence that they had. Um, and at the very end of the movie, when P.T. Barnum is going through a really tough time, and he feels like he's the worst because he ruined everything, and killed the circus, they in turn created that safe space for PT to come and feel accepted still no matter what. And even though he didn't prove himself like he was trying to do, he was still a part of their community and he was still, uh, he, uh, he still had a sense of belonging, I guess, with them. Mm -hmm. And so um, it's, it's that cycle where he created it for them and then they were able to be that for him. And, I think that's really encouraging for us because that means that 
we don't have to be perfect. We don't have to overcome all of our fears before we can create that safe space for other people. Um, so we don't have to be like Jesus and perfect in order to be like what he was to the Samaritan woman. We could come just as we are and create that space for other people. And then it turns into a whole snowball effect, I guess, where we can continue to encourage each other and create a greater space of freedom and um, ability to be who we are. And I think that's what Jesus wants for us as a church. He wants us to be an extension of his hands in creating um, a safe space, his safe space, for all of our church community. And so then we wanted to kind of think of these scenarios and go through a few scenarios of what it would look like for our church, for um, this community to have that safe space, to be what it would look like for it to be safe and what it maybe would look like to be unsafe. And so we can kind of see the comparison. So the first scenario we wanted to do is to imagine coming back to church after a long period of time. And so you're a person maybe that you took a long leave of absence from church, whether it be for work reasons or maybe you just fell away from the church. And you decide, okay, today, this Sunday morning, I'm going to go back to church. And so some of the things in your mind might be running through that you're worried about would be like, oh, no, I haven't seen people in a long time. They're going to be, you know, wondering where I've been. They're going to think that, oh, man, I'm, what's so important that you haven't been to church in so long? Or maybe I won't even know anyone because it's been so long. Um, and so then the unsafe space uh, community would be, the response would be fulfilling those fears, would be actually people coming up to you and being like, hey, stranger, where have you been for so long? Or like, wow, I haven't seen you in so long. Or, you know, and I, I'm sure their intentions aren't to make you feel guilty, but it really does alienate the person when you say those kind of things, and it makes them feel, they already feel uncomfortable probably by coming to church for a long time, and then you're already putting more guilt on yourself. I mean, that's just... Not the way to respond if in an unsafe space. Uh, for the safe space, I feel like we would walk in the doors and we would re- be received with warmth, and it'd be a very welcoming place. And it wouldn't be about the past. It wouldn't be like, oh, like what have you been doing that's so important that's kept you away from church. But it'd just be about that you're here now, that you're in the present, and that they're, we're, they're just happy to have you here in this moment today. And that's what we thought would be the, the safe space community for this scenario. Mm-hmm. Um, So the second scenario we thought of is if for some reason maybe you're feeling burned out, maybe your heart's not really in it, I don't know, whatever the reason may be, but you feel like you want to step down from serving. And um, probably a lot of guilt is associated with that. You know, if you're a person who fears judgment like I do, probably you feel a lot of guilt or you feel like, oh, what are people going to say? They're probably going to think I'm a horrible person because I don't want to serve Jesus. Um, But an unsafe space Um, would be, yeah, people reacting negatively to your decision, maybe uh, saying like, wow, like, doesn't she care about the ministry or doesn't she care about the people that she's serving or why would she be stepping down? Like, that's such a horrible timing, such a horrible thing to do. Hopefully none of you feel that way, (laughs) but that's pretty harsh, but that's something that's really an unsafe space or things to that effect, right? But on the flip side, a safe space is um, allowing the person the freedom to do that because we have a culture and we know that a person's worth is not tied to their service at church and you don't have to earn your value by serving at church and hopefully it's also you know if, if something is going on if they are feeling burnt out the people would come around that person who wants to step down and say like hey is something going on like can we pray for you is there a way that we could support you and caring more about the person instead of the ministry And finally, 
having a, a culture where we can have people serve out of their giftings and out of their passion instead of obligation. Mm -hmm. And lastly, the last scenario we wanted to imagine is if we were in a community or in our life group, um, we were sharing a hardship. And I feel like the worries that we may have going through that would be, um, you know, oh man, they're gonna, th they're gonna judge me or they're gonna think I'm such a bad person because on Sunday I am this person where everyone knows me as a, you know, uh, a happy person, everything's going great, work is great, marriage is great. But during Monday and Friday, it's a mess, and I'm dealing with sin, and I have all these struggles that I'm going through, and they're not going to understand that. They're just going to judge me and think I'm a terrible person. Or on the other side, you could say, oh, I am ready to share it, but I don't really want to burden these people with my problems. You know, I don't want to take up their time. People are busy. You know, I don't want to call them up on a, on a Thursday night. I'm sure they're tired. They don't want to hear about all my problems. So those are kind of the worries that you might have sharing hardship. And I think the unsafe space would be for us as a church community to keep our conversations at surface level. We'd just be like, how's it going? Good. How's it going? Good. We're good. And then when we do share about our problems, it would be to minimize them or just trying to fix it. And I think I had that problem. We had a lot of problems in our early relationship where she would, Jordan would tell me these problems and I'd be like, oh, well, just do this. Or like, oh, wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. Just, just, why don't you just do this? Or have you tried this? And she's like, will you just listen to me and not try to fix the problem? So I think a lot of us men, I don't know if I want to put, oh, uh, sorry, it's probably more me, but I don't want to peg you all. <laughs> yeah, no, men are probably like, hey, whoa, whoa, speak for yourself, Daniel. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I try to fix things, you know, but really uh, the safe, you know, you, that's what we do. Is if you're trying to just fix the thing, you're focusing more on the actions than the person. Whereas in a safe space, we're just listening. We're empathizing. We're, we're, tr we're trying to focus on the person, not their actions. And we're going to come alongside them and that there's no judgment and, w and whatever they share, we can always affirm them that of God's love and their grace and mercy um, that is unconditional. And that hopefully in this community that they feel like they can share anything and it won't change the opinion of anyone in that group. Yeah, those are hopefully just some practical things that we could get you guys to start thinking about what it looks like to um, have create a safe space for people. Um, because we do want Westlake to be a place that uh, people feel welcome and people feel like they could be safe here. You know, we want people to come here and come in through those doors and whether it's their millionth time here, whether it's their first time here, to be able to recognize and say like, wow, people at Westlake, they really love each other. Or people here, they're really open and free and they're true to themselves and that's really refreshing. You know, we want people to come in and see that we are an extension of Jesus's kingdom. We're an extension of his safe haven. And um, yeah, that people could come and feel like they could be comfortable who the, in who they are and free of judgment. Um, yeah, we want you know, people to be able to come in and know that no matter what, they have a community here that will support them and have their back no matter what. And so, you know, just, we want us to take the time to just reflect on that and kind of imagine like what it would look like for people to come in and to be able to feel that immediately as they come in and recognize that people feel free here and that gives them the freedom to be who they are too and to be able to feel free as well and that we can all do that together. And so for to close, we wanted to show the clip of the song, This Is Me. And this is a really, really powerful song for me at least because um, this is the moment where the performers come together 
and they are overcoming, overcoming their fear of judgment, and they are um, deciding that they're not going to accept other people's ridicule anymore, but they're going to own who they are, right? And they're going to show themselves off and not hide away anymore, and they're doing it together. I am not a stranger to the dark. Hide away, they say, because we don't want your broken parts. I learned to be ashamed of all my scars. Run away, they say, no one will love you as you are. But I won't let them break me down to dust. I know that there's a place for us. For we are glorious. When the sharpest words want to cut me down, I'm going to send a blood, going to drown them out. I am brave. I am bruised. I am who I'm meant to be. This is me. Look out, because here I come. And I'm marching on to the beat I drum. Not scared to be seen. I make no apologies. This is me. Look out, cause here I come